Welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that will never concede. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Don Acton. This week, we'll talk about what we've been watching. We have a conflict of interest about whether there's too much choice. And for our main review, it's the latest video on demand release, Possessor, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. James, what's going on in your world this week? I had a chilling experience in my real outside life. I was walking down the street, town centre, next to the tram station, only about five o'clock, and I was approached by a young man, a youth, you might say. He absolutely reeked of marijuana. (laughs) It was overpowering. I felt sick for about half an hour afterwards. He approached us babbling just babbling away. My first instinct was, oh, this is someone asking for money. So I just said, no, 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 thank you, even though he wasn't offering anything. (laughs) I was politely trying to get rid of him. I put my arm out, my forearm out, to stop the approach. So he was at upper arm's length and pressing against my forearm. I just kept saying, no, 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 no. And then... My wife dragged me off and she held my right hand and I was thinking, if you hold my hand, that stops me from defending myself potentially. So that is a potential hazard. We just walked off and he kept walking behind us, but he wasn't catching up. So I figured, well, I guess this is fine. But five o'clock, five o'clock, that's the kind of thing that's going on. But as is standard for me, I spent the next half a day, day thinking of all the different things that could have happened. An elbow uppercut, a kick to the knee, dislocating his his knee, chop to the throat, anything. But then that that never solves it. But that's the kind of thing that you think about, isn't it, in situations like that. After the situation, you think, oh, all the things that could have happened. Smashed his head through a taxi driver's window. Aggressive reaction, given that there was no violence from him. But uh, you were well prepared, it sounds like, mentally. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Very good. Did your wife fall over when you put your arm out? (laughs) (laughs) No, she didn't. She remained standing. There's a lesson to be learned from that story. If you're going to do drugs, wait till seven o'clock. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Or don't do drugs as well. Shall we move on to what we've been watching? Yes, let's move on to that. What have you been watching? This week, I watched a film called Lynn and Lucy. Have you heard of this no i say lynn and lucy it's lynn plus lucy i think anyway lynn and lucy lynn plus lucy whatever it might be so this is available on bbc iplayer it is a film last week's looted was a grim british drama with some form of social commentary this is very much the same in that sense but i liked it it's the story of two working class mums who've been friends since childhood And it details their relationship as adults, which becomes more than a little complicated following the death of Lucy's son. This then creates a rumour mill in the local community where people start accusing Lucy and her partner of having something to do with the death. Her friend Lynn gets swept along in this and then finds her loyalties divided. And this then sets in motion the story of watching this relationship ultimately deteriorate. 
it's not a pleasant film. It's obviously quite harrowing subject matter. It is a film about loss, grief, friendship, and betrayal. But the performances are great, particularly the woman who plays Lucy. I think this is her first role, but she is amazing. From memory, there's no score in this film, and it's shot in a 4 by 3 aspect ratio. There's no fancy camera gimmickry at all. This is just a bare-bones story of the lives of these two women slowly falling apart following this tragedy. It's quite brutal and hard to watch in parts, and I don't mean that in a, in a graphic way. It's just very bleak, but at the same time, it feels like a very honest story, and I quite enjoyed it. That sounds good. Are there any familiar names in it? Familiar faces? I recognise nobody. Apparently the woman who plays Lynn, she's appeared in quite a lot. Couldn't say that I've ever seen her in anything, though. But no, no familiar faces. Good addition to the grim England social realism canon. Yes, and I would say if you had a choice between Looted and Lynn and Lucy, all the L's, watch Lynn and Lucy. And contains the song Stars Are Blind by Paris Hilton, which I did not see coming. So yeah, if you want to relive your youth, listen to a bit of Paris Hilton. This film ticks that box. I'm intrigued then. A film, easy to watch, not an entire um, series. What else have you been watching? I resubscribed to Disney Plus this week because I wanted to leave my son in the room for a few hours and ignore him. Um, No, I'm joking. I don't do that. But whilst I subscribed, I saw that Taylor Swift had dropped a new documentary on Disney Plus called Folklore, The Long Pond Studio Sessions. I'm a Taylor Swift fan, a Swifty, you could call me, an unapologetic one at that. I love this woman. I think she's an incredible artist and she's actually quite diverse with the music. She's probably best known for the cheesy pop singles that she's released, but she started out as a country artist, which I don't know if you know that. I fell in love with her at that point before she got super famous, right? So I was on the Taylor Swift wagon before anybody else. Anybody. She writes her own music. She can play guitar and piano. She's awesome. And I went watching her reputation tour. Sorry, I'm geeking out a bit. But it's one of the best things I've ever seen live. It was so bombastic. Her voice was incredible. And just her sheer presence on stage blew me away. Anyway... Her latest album, Folklore, was surprise dropped with 24 hours notice earlier this year. And it was written during the pandemic and it was very, very well received. But I'll be honest, it left me a little cold the first time I heard it. It's not an uplifting album. It's quite self-reflective and somber in tone. So it's hard for you to get sucked into it. It's not catchy. But this documentary made me want to revisit it. And it's left me with a greater appreciation for the album. It's her discussing the creation of it with like a track by track dissection of what each song is about, the hidden meaning within it, and also talking about people that she collaborated with. All of the people that did work on this album as well, they did so in isolation. It feels like quite a cathartic experience for her because she says at the beginning that she really wants to perform it live. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like it's really an album. It's more like a dream. So that's what this is. It's her talking about the songs track by track, performs it, repeat. It's very stripped back. It's just shot in a a woodland cabin with two of her friends. And that's it. That's it, really. There's no glamour going on. She doesn't even wear makeup. And she's got a really hideous oversized shirt on for most of it. So she's not bothered about that side of things. But there's no denying that lyrically, 
it's a great album and the songs are just really really well put together even down to the order in which they appear i feel like this is her doing an album for herself it's not intended to be a crowd pleaser it's very very personal but it was a nice opportunity to understand her creative process and learn more about her as an artist and i would encourage people to watch miss america too on netflix because that's also really good like i said nothing fancy in the way it's shot it's just a documentary about making music with performances thrown in and i really enjoyed it does she perform the songs live in the documentary yes okay yeah that's good so it's like a live show as well yeah basically it does sound like a very interesting idea well done disney for picking that one up what about you james what's on your watch list i have been watching good lord bird on now tv good lord bird Watch the trailer for this. Just watch the short preview. And if you are not convinced to watch this just for Ethan Hawke, I don't know what else to say to you. Ethan Hawke is the greatest actor currently working. I'm going to put that on the table right now. He's in turbo in this. He is in turbo. It's ridiculously entertaining watching him in this. It's about John Brown's violent abolitionist efforts in the USA before the Civil War told through the eyes of a freed slave boy who dresses as a girl for most of the story, played by Joshua Caleb Johnson, who gets an introducing credit. So this must be one of his first roles. I was a bit daunted going into it because I don't know the history of the Civil War, let alone the inciting incidents before the Civil War, which is what this is about. But somehow, even with my ignorance and with the subject matter, which is slavery, this is very entertaining the incompetence of john brown's crew the boy who's nicknamed onion failing constantly at convincing people that he's a girl it's very entertaining i'm not all the way through it yet but it's about john brown trying to get support for a more violent opposition to slavery in america just before the civil war It's a limited series, so you can get in and get out without having to worry about coming back for another season next year. It's cinematic, big budget, better than probably 95% of what is on Netflix. So I'd heavily recommend this. Worth a Now TV subscription alone? Yes. Oh, that good. Okay. What is that about? Is like, is forced to dress as a woman to keep... John Brown just believes that he is a girl or he mishears the boy's father say his name so john brown believes that onion is a girl and he just decides to keep up with it i'll just keep pretending i'm a girl for different reasons so he goes to a brothel dressed as a girl but then the women immediately say you're not a girl what is going on here what's going on so that's that's funny and ethan hawk's just so over the top it's the most over the top performance i've seen recently so good i've got to be honest the time period puts me off i know that we both liked hamilton but yeah it's not something that i'm i'm eager to watch if i'm on it despite how good you say it is it's just that time period just nah it's visually quite bleak but entertaining again somehow don't know how but it is very good what else on apple tv becoming you which is a documentary about children growing from birth to five years old. The first 2,000 days of their lives, narrated by Olivia Coleman, the queen herself. The way it works is that each episode has a theme like speech, making friends, or movement, and it tracks the development of 
those things from birth to five years old in each episode. The whole series doesn't go from zero to five in the last episode. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it stays fresh each episode. It's basically a child psychology dissertation as a big budget documentary. So if that doesn't sound interesting to you, don't watch it. It looks at when the children learn to speak. When do they realize the sense of self? When do boys and girls start to play separately? Just looks at those things from a very scientific yet entertaining and well shot perspective. What I liked about it was the different cultures it shows. There's people in the mountains of Mongolia, the sea people of Borneo, who learn to use machetes when they're three years old and ride canoes by themselves when they're three years old. Child monks in Nepal. It was a nice bit of cultural learning, like a, a tourist program in a way, a travel program. There are also people in New York and London that shows a more familiar side of things. But I realised about episode four that this is it. There's no more locations. It doesn't give you more and more locations as it goes on. You'll keep going back to New York, Mongolia, Borneo, which is fine. But just to warn you, it doesn't go into places all over the world, even though it claims to be about 100 children. Surprisingly good, heartwarming. I would recommend watching it with a partner so you can say, oh, that's cute. Oh, look at how cute they are. But surprisingly good offering from Apple. Again, they've delivered. They've got a 100% success rate on what I've watched with them up to now. Very good. What if you live on your own and for love no money, you can't get a partner, which you just said, don't don't bother watching it. Yeah. Because if you're watching watching these families and they are all happy, especially the people in New York and London who have to be living in very expensive homes, you might just feel a bit sad. When do children start to speak, by the way? I don't remember. I don't remember. That's fine. By the age of five, there's one girl by the age of five who speaks Chinese, French and English fluently. Oh, come on. That's sickening. Right, you've put me off it. I don't want to... Don't want to watch that now. It does tell you. I don't remember, but it does tell you. Because, again, there's a speech episode all by itself. And, right, just as I was thinking, hmm, all these children are all able-bodied. None of these 100 children that they've done have got a disability. And as soon as I thought that, a deaf baby turned up, and I thought, it is properly diverse. Cool. That's, That's a nice array of entertainment that you've watched there. Dare I say... This is our first non-Netflix episode. No Netflix. Oh, yeah. This week, I also watched We Are the Champions on Netflix. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you're right, I didn't. That's an anomaly that I doubt we'll ever pull that off ever again. Probably not, no. We definitely won't with next week's main review. There is a lot of choice, isn't there? A lot of platforms to choose from and a lot of content within those platforms. But is it a good thing or not? Is it a bad thing? I'm leading, in, I'm leading into the... Oh, let's see what you're doing. Yep. What are you talking about, yeah? I very much disagree Shut up, with yeah. that. Two. You do not have good opinions. What an idiot. I hate everything. You can't even speak. Nothing you say makes sense. Conflicts of interest. In this week's Conflicts of Interest, we're talking about whether we have too much choice in the age of the streaming wars. It's important to draw the distinction that this is around TV shows. Personally, and I think we're going to be in agreement, when it comes to film, I think there's a lot out there, but it's nowhere near as extensive as TV. And it's largely the same type of thing. Horror, superhero films, sequels. So are we centering this around TV, do you think? Yes, let's do that. 
I also want to say as well that we have to be careful because I don't want our opinions to be tainted by the demands of this podcast because I think they could be. Point in case, The Third Day, my favourite TV show of the year, I loved the first three episodes. I haven't watched any more of it, mainly due to the 12-hour live event that I want to get through. It's difficult when we need to bring new content each week, but that's a separate discussion. So you, James, you you start off. Cast your mind back to before this podcast. Do you think it's a problem or not? For me, it is a problem because I'm suffering from analysis paralysis. (laughs) Every time I go to look for new content to watch, I spend so much time thinking about it that I don't get anywhere. And then when I do choose something to watch, knowing that there's so many other things to watch, I can't concentrate on the actual choice Mm. that I make. So that's my current take on it. I think another point to make is that we're not the analysts or consultants and we haven't conducted studies. We are the actual consumers that are talked about in other studies. And that is my consumer experience that I can tell you that analysis paralysis is something that I often come across. And when I have made my latest streaming choice, Becoming You, I made that choice because that was the only thing really that was at the top of Apple. It's one of the three things maybe that's on there. But faced with Netflix, the endless grid of things, I I don't know what to pick. Mm. I mean, we've slagged Apple off, but maybe that's its saving grace. It's that there's just too little content on there. (laughs) So you're forced into watching something. What's your current personal experience feeling like? It is a problem, and it has been for quite some time. Like you said, you do so many competing streaming services, all with their original content. But at the same time, the main problem is that they're all trying to draw in the exact same audience. So you've got Amazon and Netflix bringing out shows in the same sort of genre, directly competing with one another. For example, The Boys versus Umbrella Academy or Mindhunter versus Bosch. Bosch! And the danger as well is that I think depending on your preferred content, you are catered for. So another example, crime drama is my thing. There's a new one every damn week every week and i'm using these services as an example but then you've got itv and bbc bringing me the same sort of content on top of that so if i have only a limited amount of time to dedicate to something i'm going to gravitate towards what i enjoy the most but i'm missing out on the opportunity to watch some like blistering television but i'm never going to be stuck for something to watch because they're going to keep churning out this content for years to come meaning i can't go back and revisit it because i don't have the time if i do have the time I'm more than likely going to be watching the things that everybody else is talking about. Whilst the amount of choice is a hugely beneficial thing on the surface of it, and it looks like you can take your pick, I think, again, depending on the sort of individual you are, you're still subconsciously being forced to watch either your type of content or whatever's in the zeitgeist at that moment, purely to be part of the conversation. That's a really good point about the zeitgeist because there's so much to watch on Netflix. There's so much choice, but I always find that I will gravitate towards either what they're promoting in their animated blocks at the top or the top 10. So I'm not even making a choice, even though I could. And that point about watching what is good for you, when I'm choosing something to watch, I think after I've made this choice, when I do finally make it five, 10 minutes into scrolling through multiple services, it had better be good. It had better be good. So I better watch something that I'm very likely to like. So I'll stay within 
my area like science fiction or dystopia so i don't mm. actually get to experience all the new stuff all the stuff that will be new to me and when you do you're having to make a sacrifice to be part of that cultural moment you need to watch it then as well there's no point talking about game of thrones now with your colleagues our friendship group they've all seen it I mentioned it because you remember when we did the viewing habits and the is the medium of TV dead? Yes, when we looked at the Ofcom Media Nations report. Yeah, but it, I think it does inform this discussion as well because now, and again, we said it at the time, but you're culturally relevant for a small amount of time and then more often than not, you just disappear into oblivion. So like I think we even said specifically at the time, but Tiger King or The Last Dance, they're good examples of that. You watching Breaking Bad, the last season. On its, I'm sorry to bring it up again. It never seems to die, this conversation. But as much as I thought that was insane, you had to sacrifice something to be part of that moment. And that's why you watched the last season. All this, for me, it results in some series just disappearing off into the ether. You just don't have the opportunity to watch them. If you're not relevant at that moment, you're dead and gone. It's a blink and you'll miss it type of fur. And I think that's quite sad. Things do come and go too quickly. Do you remember when the first Blue Planet was on and it was broadcast week by week on TV? That seemed to be the only thing that was on and the only thing, this is a few years ago now, the only thing that people were talking about. And that was over a period of maybe more than a month. And there, not having any choice was good. And you had the time to dive in and follow the bandwagon. But now with something like Queen's Gambit, I've not watched it. And already now it is too late to talk about it. <laughs> it's come and gone. And if you miss something, you can miss it very quickly. And then the next choice is already there. Before you've even got a chance to process whether something's good, the next choice is already in front of you and you better get on it. And knowingly or not, you have contributed to the demise of that program. Because if you weren't there initially to watch it, chances are it's been cancelled. Yeah, that's true. Because I think the Netflix cancellation criteria is to do with how many people watch it when it first comes out and how many people watch it in full. So if you don't make that initial immediate commitment to watch it and watch it in full, it goes away. So things are not going to develop over years and get saved, like The Expanse on sci-fi that was picked up by Amazon. Can you hazard a guess at how many Netflix TV shows have been cancelled since it first started producing original content? Throw a figure in the air, James. When did it first start? I think Netflix, did it start in 2007? But it didn't start yeah. off making originals, did they? No, that was in, in 2013 with House of Cards. House of Cards starring Robin Wright and no one else. There's no male lead actor in that program. No, definitely not. How many have been cancelled? 115. Oh, all right, okay. That was a bit more conservative than that. 47 shows. So I was thinking that was really bad, but... I've just completely come in way too high. That's my fault for coming in too high. You were best to assume the worst, though, I think. Uh, I'll mention a few casualties, some of them recent. Glow, The OA... Santa Clarissa Diet, is it? Can't really, never watched that. True Barrymore, not a fan. Jessica Jones, Spinning Out, which I loved. Altered Carbon, Messiah, and The Dark Crystal, which is a shame because it won an Emmy. So critically, in fact, a lot of them critically acclaimed, but failed to make the cut. The biggest one missing from that list, Chambers on Netflix. I loved that. That was one of my favourite programmes of last year and built up a bit of a cult following, but never, ever to be seen ever again. 
Glow and Altered Carbon, they're the kinds of programs that are good, that are worth making. And in another time, a better time, they would have grown over a few years. Like the example that I always talk about, Star Trek, The Next Generation, not good for the first two years. It's known for not being good for the first two years. And then it gets good. The scary thing with Netflix and the digital age that we're in, I think, is that they can have an algorithm that will tell you what to watch. They'll hide how much choice there is because the algorithm will show you what it thinks that you want and keep you in your box. YouTube is the worst at doing that. But now that they're making their own original content, they can produce content that is exactly catered to that algorithm as well. Yeah, you could have TV shows that will naturally find the footing along the way, but I don't think that exists anymore. You don't get slow burn TV. You have to hook an audience and quickly. And if you don't, you're dead, which I think that's the sad side of this. And I I do worry that the future of streaming content could look a lot more like this. It will just be very specific shows catered for people knowing full well that this will sustain an audience for at least a year. It's going to bring in some more subscribers and then it's on to the next thing. And I think that's what I'm more wary of than anything else. Just to give the opposing side properly, I'm just going to quickly advocate for free market capitalism, which is to say that when there is this amount of choice, the digital consumers, they're very clearly making their decisions. It's very, very clear to these companies who we're subscribing to and then what we're watching, which means that the demand will surely always be met. So while there is a lot of choice, the choice that is there, we can hope it's determined by market forces. That yes, there's a lot of choice, but if everyone watches The Expanse and Miss America, more programs like that will get made. But if only a few things were made, you'd have no choice but to watch them. And then you'd never know what, or the companies would never know what was good and what isn't good. I can't counter argue with you there. I think you make a good point. Can I ask you about price? Yes, please do. There was a prophecy at the start of the streaming wars about the price of all these streaming services combined adding up to more than, say, a Sky subscription. And I think we're at that point now. I think we're at that point. Because if you want to watch The Boys and Umbrella Academy and The Mandalorian, it's going to start adding up. Is it good for the consumer in that way? Maybe not. No, I think as more and more of them spin up, as is naturally happening, it's just not going to be sustainable. I mean, I think we're still far off the price of a Sky subscription. I used to pay one once, and my word, I'm nowhere near that limit, and I'm more or less subscribed to everything. But yeah, we are going to get there one day. Yeah, because it's not just the choice within the platforms, but the choice between the platforms. I'll just quickly tell you about a study that I found from 2019 that surveyed a few thousand people done by tvtime.com and they said that the biggest frustrations was toggling between services and account setup and management and ability to find content easily which is part of what we're talking about here i think that there's there's too many services there is an app for that though isn't there real good yes i'd highly recommend it it's very useful isn't it i would recommend it as well so let's not produce too much content on this matter james let's summarize our thoughts in summary where where's your head at make your own decisions on what you want to watch don't try and follow the zeitgeist and subscribe to everything but when you do make that choice also find something new don't just be guided by the algorithm and if you can't make that decision make sure that you have 
many, many, many email addresses so that you can sign up for repeated free trials. What are your concluding thoughts? Can there be too much of a good thing? Too much content? From the outside looking in, it's a great thing. There's more choice than ever before. How can you possibly mourn about the abundance of television that you have at your fingertips? On the flip side, I do think the impact of this new age that we live in will start to have some very negative effects on what the future of content looks like. But it's early doors. I remain to bear witness to the nightmare that is in store for us, no doubt. And despite all the content available across all the streaming services, this week's main review is not available on any of them. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Hold me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week we're talking about the new on-demand release. Possessor. Possessor. You have a very special nature. One we've worked hard together to unlock. The results are normal. Anything you want to flag? No. No, I'm fine. Mom! Hi, darling. How was your trip? Dull. Extraordinarily dull. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the US. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? What's with you today? What do you mean? I'm in place. Can we help you? Finish this. Disney makes the catastrophic decision to ask Brandon Cronenberg to write and direct the latest Freaky Friday remake. Available to buy on Amazon, Apple TV and Google Play, those corporations must surely be worried about how a successful film with a vision of a corporate-dominated future devoid of privacy might jeopardise their own vision of a corporate-dominated future devoid of privacy. It's fortunate, then, that this film will, instead, most likely be remembered for having a female penis, a rubber mask, and a protagonist more sympathetic and charismatic than Captain Marvel. Did we watched the same film um, <laughs> possessor follows an agent who works for a secretive organization that uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies ultimately driving them to commit assassinations for high-paying clients james or whoever resides within what did you think of possessor it's refreshing to see something totally completely original that's my first point i'm going to put that on the table this is a straightforward idea. Assassins that possess other people to do the job. And this follows one mission, so to speak. So you can get on board with the story at least quite easily, I thought. It's easy to follow. And you just let it slowly suck you in to this messed up world with the details that come forward. It's very methodically paced. But as I said with On the Rocks and Looted previously, less than two hours 
is good, usually. It doesn't drag. The drama's constantly building. Everyone is very calm until there's flashes of extreme violence or sex. Which leads me to say, this is one of the most graphic films that I have ever seen. With the nudity, but mainly the violence, it really tries to make you sick with the blood and the gore and the lingering shots of blood. But it works for the story. It always makes a point. I think this is best described as a mix between Mission Impossible and Under the Skin. A secret unit doing missions, espionage, technology, mixed with horror and mind-bending, disturbing images that will be repeated again and again, I'm sure. I feel like I mentioned this too much, but I like the colour. There's all blue, all red, all yellow scenes that are unsettling and hypnotic. And there are simple things like having Andrea Riseborough at the very edge of the frame to throw you off. And it's someone's vision brought to life. And there was a point halfway through where I realised I was leaning forward with my eyes wide open because I was so drawn into it. Andrea Riseborough is brilliant. I've never seen someone convey so much with just their mouth opening slightly with only the mouth on the screen. She's iconic in this. I loved her. What I wasn't expecting was the commentary on privacy and technology and future employment that added to my enjoyment, but they didn't overdo it. I didn't feel it was underdeveloped. It was a nice presence. This doesn't offer any relief, comedy relief. It is quite a challenge, but it was worth it. Daniel, what did you think of Possessor? Well, first off, one of us is guilty of plagiarism this week because the beginning part of your review is nearly word for word exactly what I thought. Um, It is a very interesting concept and a a worthy addition to the body swap genre with some sci-fi thrown into the mix because more often than not, you find films of this type around fantasy angle. Like you said, an original idea. It's not based on a book, graphic novel or a sequel. It's brand new. Uh, And I really appreciated that. I had a real worry going into this that it was going to be quite an abstract art house type film with little plot. But like you said, it is very easy to follow that. Couldn't be further from the truth. The narrative's like pretty uh, easy to get on board with. It's not much to wrap your head around. A few weeks back, I think this is quite an interesting parallel. We reviewed Black Box, which I think had a similar-ish idea. I do think that this is what I wanted Black Box to be. It just feels like it has a lot more ambition than that film had and and is successful in getting that across. The opening of Possessor is the most grab-you-by-the-balls, sit-the-fuck-up-and-listen that I've seen in quite some time. It's basically a brutal murder, but the lead-up to it is so suspenseful and the outcome so undeniably graphic. I was just like, wow, I am gripped. I would say that It's much more interested in existing in the horror genre than in the science fiction genre. I say that because the science isn't really delved into or explained, or at least I didn't think it was. And and the world that they live in is quite similar. You just accept that it takes place at some point in the not-too-distant future. And the glimpse into the future itself is subtle, aside from the mechanic of possessing someone else's consciousness. It's quite a familiar world, which I would say makes the premise even more terrifying to me. You do, however, get this industrial aesthetic to more scenes. With the exception of like Vox's home, everything feels quite clinical, which I took to mirror Vox's psychology as she begins to feel ever more emotionally disconnected from herself and the family. The way in which the film is shot, I had similar observations to you. There's a really good use of colour 
uh, especially in some of the mind trippy segments that you get later on in the film. And as for the camera itself, I don't know if you'd noticed, but there's some really nice flourishes, which I liked. There's like these cityscape scenes where the camera's rotating as it glides across the landscape. What benefit it brought to the film, I'm not too sure, but I found it an interesting stylistic choice that was quite hypnotic to watch. The director, and we should let him stand on his own two feet, but given some of the imagery in this film, it seems only right to point out that, as we said last week, this is David Cronenberg's son. And you can feel that influence with some of the body horror aspects in this film. As you said, it is ridiculously graphic. It is no holds barred when it comes to the violence. And I've heard that near enough everything in this film is achieved through practical effects. I'm still not convinced on CGI in some films. And not one moment in this film did I even question or notice whether it was CGI. I just accepted it as being real. And that just helped me with getting more hooked into the film. And I think that it just shows that sometimes the smaller things make a big difference. Like I said at the beginning, I found this a really refreshing viewing experience. I was on board every step of the way. This has almost set the bar for me now as to what I want the film industry to make more of. I'm not going to lie, I was blown away. I really, really enjoyed this film. David Cronenberg, director of The Fly and History of Violence, among others. Just thought I'd put that out there. Indeed, worth mentioning. As I was watching it as well, I thought more of this, more of this. Make more films like this. The practical effects, especially. The melting wax scene, which is early on. It's not a spoiler. I thought it was going to be because I read a headline of that they'd built wax replicas. You have their bodies melting away to show the transition between possessions and one body melts away and it looks completely real. And I thought, okay, well, that's one person disappearing. How are they going to show that they're now possessing someone else? They have a melting wax body in reverse. That's just so genius, all done practically. You've just filmed a melting wax body and put it in reverse and it completely makes that point of melting away and coming in as someone else. Just so effective, wasn't it? It was really, really well done. On the plot, I did think it was simple, but not going to lie, I had to watch the big exposition dump at the start three times to understand it. Okay. Where she's given the mission on see your father, the stepson, daughter, boyfriend. It doesn't give you a second chance to understand it. It gives you everything in the mission briefing, and that's it. I was expecting a reminder at some point to say, okay, Voss, you are doing this in order to kill this person, and we're working for them. Something that is in other films where you'll have someone reminding you over the headset, this is what you're doing, but they didn't do that. So I've got to be honest, I did have to go back and watch that three times to understand who was who. I'll make you feel better. I started watching this film, something happened, and then I resumed and I thought, do you know what, I'm going to start it again. So maybe that's the only reason that it sank in for me. So <laughs> don't beat yourself up about that. It's very hard to talk about without spoilers. So maybe we should move on to spoilers quicker than usual. But I think this is the film that Tenet could have been. The mechanics of this concept are not too complicated. They're explained throughout the film. You learn the rules and then you get to see some action play out in the end. And that's what Tenet could have been. Mm. But it got so tangled up in the mechanics of it that by the end of Tenet, I did not understand how the mechanic actually worked. But here, with Possession, you understand the gadgets that they use and you understand what the conflict actually is. I don't know if you were thinking the same thing. No, I agree. And and I think I kind of mentioned it before, but I'm not bothered that I don't know the specifics about how it works. I understand it enough to grasp the concept. 
not knowing the ins and outs of it in detail doesn't impact my enjoyment of the film where I feel like with Tenet, it is mandatory for you to understand the finer detail in order to enjoy it. And that's why I hold this film in a lot higher regard than I do Tenet. Well, James, it looks like our critical stars have aligned once more following our little bump in the road last week we've looted. But let's just make absolutely sure, James, would you recommend Possessor? Yes, definitely, absolutely. But with a health warning, there are one or two or three scenes of extreme violence. Daniel, would you recommend Possessor? I'm starting to get really worried now because obviously we make notes and as I said at the beginning of this, feels like somebody's copying someone and yet again, we've made the exact same observations. I've said health warning, not for the faint of heart. So who's possessing who? I would go as far as saying this is my most enthusiastic recommend so far on this podcast. I am putting it up there in my top five for the year. We will be releasing an end of year review. We will see if it can maintain that spot on my list. But yeah, I love this film. Very, very enthusiastic recommend. So let's lie back, close our eyes, put on our weird headpiece and go into spoilers for Possessor. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. I don't remember the last time I felt this energised by a film. I share your feelings about how high this stands. However, I've seen some negative comments about it online. Complaining about the main character, Tasha Voss, played by Andrea Riseborough, not being sympathetic. Because the film opens with her possessing a young woman, Holly Bergman played by Gabrielle Graham, killing someone and then murdering Holly Bergman as collateral damage. So how could you follow a film with a main character that's so obviously evil? I thought it was fine. I didn't have a problem with it because I like the idea of it. The idea of the film is so good that I didn't think sympathising and supporting the main character was necessary. And I don't think sympathising with the main character or supporting them is a prerequisite for enjoying a film. No, I completely agree. And I think that it actually works in the film's favour, in my opinion, because at the very beginning, she is killing for hire. You don't know, unless I've missed this bit, you don't know why she's killing him. He might be a particularly horrible bloke and he might deserve it. All right, it's in a very, very graphic, brutal way. But again, how many times do we watch films in which our hero or heroine off someone quite a lot? And there's this humanisation or perceived humanisation of a at the beginning of the film where she's trying to get more connected with her family. She's like rehearsing what she's going to say when she walks through the door. And I actually did have an element of sympathy for her because I thought well, this will probably take a lot out of you emotionally to kill people as part of your day job and then go back to your family. And I actually thought that works in a really nice way because then it does this massive twist on that further in the film, which, okay, I don't end up sympathising with her, but I thought it was quite impressive how it toyed with my expectations of where I thought that plot strand was going. So I, I didn't mind it at all. In fact, I feel like it benefited the film. Yeah, I think that was the story, and that is what was good. It was a Godfather-type story of someone slipping further and further down. I've seen some comments about some underdeveloped ideas, like the VR office space, when... Voss is possessing Colin Tate. She goes to his workplace. People are lined up, sat down, facing a wall with VR headsets on. And when he puts on the headset, you're in a picturesque office space doing your menial task. 
And that's all that you see of that. That idea is not developed further. It doesn't do anything else with that idea of the nightmare near future. But again, I thought it, it added a bit of flavour to the world. I've got to be honest, that was probably the main bit of the film that I struggled with. I didn't grasp what they were doing in those scenes. So he's analysing different types of curtains or blinds. And at first I thought, oh, this is to check the accuracy of them in this virtual space. Is that what was going on? I think what was going on is that he's collecting data on people's behaviour. So they've got these webcams set up that people seem to know that what they're doing is being shared. And it's the job of those people looking at the webcams to look at what people have bought and what people are using. And on that, and on that particular day, he was looking at curtains and blinds so that that evil company will have all this data about what people are currently using in their lives be that lamps chairs blinds that makes sense now because part of the plot is around this data mining that's going on so yeah that completely makes sense thanks for clearing that up for me did you notice these random bits of i'm pretty sure they weren't polystyrene but it looked like polystyrene that would present themselves in scenes and colin tate would pick them up and look at them as if oh what is this i also was left thinking what is this but it's never it's never revealed is there something I missed there that perhaps you've read or did you have a different take on it? I didn't get it either. The vibrating polystyrene, I didn't understand it. I thought maybe it was the implant. It wasn't literally the implant, but they put an implant in the target's head to initiate the possession. And I wondered if that was supposed to be the implant becoming unstable and representing that. I thought it was the first of many hallucinations but it's not because she doesn't hallucinate. It's only that polystyrene. I didn't get what that is either. Oh, okay. As long as it's not just me. Do hear, by the way, that Brandon Cronenberg will entertain the idea of a sequel. So maybe that'll be explained then. Yeah. This is a film that in the hands of another director or another company, it could be done as a much more straightforward spy adventure film. McGee. Yes. Directed by McGee, this would be a wacky body swap possession with some eye-popping action. But you can see that this is the vision of a director that is hell-bent on making you feel sick. But we recommend it. Yes, we would. <laughs> the scene that is probably the the worst thing to witness in the film, where Sean Bean is gets his skull smashed in. Not an important point, but what is he getting hit with in that scene? I really didn't know. It's a fire poker. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Smashing his teeth, twisting it round, popping his eyeball out. You see it all. That was horrific. That did make me physically cringe. I physically reacted to it when it came on. So cringe as in, oh, that's a bit awkward. <laughs> I mean, I, I tightened up. I can't, I don't know how to describe it. So there is a scene in which. Our assassin attacks Sean Bean with a fire poker. He strikes him in the back, he falls to the ground, bashes him over the head with it, but then the fire poker is inserted into Sean Bean's mouth. It's twisted around, you just hear the twisting and the gargling of blood. But then there's two key shots. Number one, the fire poker's twisted and Sean Bean's three or four of his teeth pop out the side of his mouth. Second shot, fire poker into the eye socket and the eyeball is prized out and it's covered in blood cut back to the assassin who's Colin Tate slash 
Tasha Voss in his body. She is loving it. She's loving it. So that's the scene. It is the worst thing I've ever seen. You're more of a horror guy. So how does this compare for you? It's up there. It's up there. I think I'm a bit desensitized to some of this stuff, but I recognized it at least as being something that most people would be absolutely appalled by. But I was just like, oh, he's gone that far with it. Interesting. To compare it to anything, I think the worst experience that I've had in terms of, oh my God, they went there. And I can't remember what particular moment it is now, but have you ever seen Enter the Void, the Gaspar Noé film? No. That's quite bad. I'd say this is on par with that, but this is definitely up there for sure. Full show. Because I've seen worse scenes of violence of people's heads exploding or Robocop's hand getting shot off. But it's the way that it's done so slowly with some enjoyment and the sound of the twisting and cracking of bone and gargling. And he's so obviously still alive and aware of the pain. It shows you the pain and that's what made it so difficult. Not a film to shy away from pushing the boundaries this at all. There is at least two erect penises as well, as you mentioned in your summary at the beginning. So no expense spared. Let's let's get a let's get a rock hard dick in the mix. And then she she slash he chases after the girlfriend, Ava Pass, played by Tuppence Middleton. And I thought, no, 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 what are you gonna do to her now? Because I don't, I just, I don't know if I can take this. But thankfully, thankfully, she just gets shot twice in the back, and then she gets shot in the back of the head. The ending, James. Should we discuss the ending? Because I believe you've read something where people are confused as to what we should take away from this film at the end. Personally, I thought it was pretty clear cut. Do you want to fill us in on what the alternative point of view is, and and in fact, what happens? So what happens is a battle of consciousnesses takes place between Colin and Tasha. Tasha goes back to her home where her husband, separated husband and son are. There's a discussion between Tasha and Colin about returning the body. There's threats to kill the husband. Tasha takes possession of Colin's body. She kills her husband willingly, in my opinion, brutally and passionately. Then she kills her own son. Then Tasha wakes up. She's back in her own body. You have the confirmation that she's returned successfully she picks up a butterfly she used to feel guilty about killing the butterfly she no longer comments on her guilt so in an article on screenrant.com they say that it is in fact colin that kills tasha's husband as an act of revenge for tasha not ending the possession which i think is totally wrong what did you think was going on completely disagree with that I thought exactly the same as you. In fact, I feel like there's several non-subtle hints to that very point, one being that you've just mentioned she felt guilty when she had this psychology test first time around at the beginning of the film. Oh, I killed the butterfly. Later on, she makes no mention to feeling guilty. So she actively enjoys the act of killing and has known so for a very long time. I took it to be she wanted to do this for a very long time. She actually sees her family as a distraction to a job. And the way in which she settles this in her own mind is to do it through another host. So she almost relinquishes responsibility for the act itself while still getting the job done. That was my take on what happened in those final scenes. That's what I thought as well. Yeah, very well put. It was like she needed plausible deniability for murdering her family because she wanted to become a full-time serial killer, I think is what is going on. Exactly. 
just another point on the ending as well, which only occurred to me earlier on today when I was thinking about it again. And I've got to be honest, it's one of those films where it has stayed with me. I've thought about it quite a lot since I've watched it. The son, as you mentioned, is killed, but at that moment in time is inhabited by her superior who's took control of her son. Now, thinking about it a bit more in depth, and I don't want it to not make sense, but how did she gain control of her son, knowing full well that they have to get the host, implant them, and then take possession of it? It's like she would have had to have the foresight to know that he was going to that house to then go, oh, God, I've got to do this. I've got to get this ball rolling with possessing a son. It was only when I thought about it, I thought, that I don't think that actually makes too much sense. It could be that family members of these assassins have the implant in them so that family members can be possessed at short notice as a failsafe. I had actually thought about that, but then I'd forgot that it had been something that came to my mind. I'm not trying to just appear intelligent, but it would make sense, wouldn't it, from an observation point of view, for them to make sure that the assassins were still being normal within family environments. Yes, I think you've settled my concerns. Yeah. They can always kill their own assassins and make it look like a violent domestic shooting. But there was no doubt in my mind that Tasha had control and she kills her husband, chops off his fingers and axes him 20 times in the chest. Great scene. Lovely scene at the end. (laughs) One of the more shocking things that I've just forgotten about, the final kill is a seven-year-old boy being shot in the head he gets shot once off screen in the chest and i thought well surely he's just going to fall over nope headshot headshot that was when you knew this is an uncut adult film that isn't holding back with a sizable exit wound it's not just a discreetly off screen kill you see it don't you that shocked me as well i didn't think it was again going that to that place That's one of the reasons I really like this film. It constantly exceeded my expectations and where I thought it was going. Good on you, Brandon. Yeah, well done. I'm going to be completely open and honest with you, though, which I think is expected on this podcast at this point. On first viewing, I completely missed that key point about her no longer commenting on the butterfly guilt. In an early scene, she's going through items that are hers to confirm that she knows who she is. She has a butterfly that she's framed after killing it. She says, I still feel guilty about killing this butterfly in my childhood. End of the film. I killed this butterfly in my childhood. Pause. No guilt. I missed that point completely. Well, I can't now say that I have as well, but it was only because (laughs) I'd wrote all my notes and I thought, now that I've done that and I'm not going to be tainted, I'm going to listen to the Slash film one. And they they mentioned that exact bit and I went, did she? (laughs) I didn't know that either. And that, that, I feel like that was, that was the whole point of the film. I got that that was the, what the story was. I even felt that it was going on with her appearance, with how she was totally bleach blonde eyebrows. She was completely faded away in her appearance. And I thought, this is someone who is losing the humanity and she wants to kill. It's just that specific absence of the guilty comment. I didn't notice that was going on. But I did notice the wider point of this is about her becoming more and more inhuman. Exactly the same journey for me. If anything, that final scene, despite the fact that I obviously didn't fully understand it or listen to what was said, it's kind of a mute point because I just took that to mean this is back to business as usual. She's not impacted by it. I took that without knowing what was said because it was very matter-of-fact discussion that she was having. So it became almost irrelevant to me. But just knowing it, again, like I said, reinforced that idea of, oh no, she is a cold, calculated killer. During that final scene, I was letting my imagination run wild 
I don't think this is the case, but instead of thinking about the guilt, I was thinking to myself, oh, these items that Tasha's looking at, the pipe and the dead butterfly, are those actually her boss's items? Gerda is the character's name. Are those Gerda's items? And over a series of possessions, has Tasha been convinced that she is someone that she's not? When Gerda's doing the test, it's a test to see, yep, she still thinks that she's the person that we want her to be. The project is secure. I think there might be something behind that, to be honest. And if this does go into sequel territory, I'd be interested to see them expand on that a bit more because there's so many little instances of her training or purporting to be somebody that everything does feel slightly manufactured with her existence. It's one of the things that I wanted to give the film a lot of credit for, really, because despite her being our protagonist, or antagonist, I suppose you could say, by the end, you're seeing through the eyes of the person that she is inhabiting, Colin Tate, 60% of the film, she is within him, but I never felt disconnected from that Vox character. I always felt as though I felt her through him. I know that sounds quite uh, weird, but I did. I'll just digress slightly with this. I've been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla recently and you get the option to play a male or female character and you can really quickly transition from one to the other. And I've done that, but I found that journey really jarring and I can't quite get to grips with it. But the way that it's done in this film, it transitions from her to him so well. Like we said before, like the process of her gearing up to be in these horse or meeting a family, she's repeating the subject's dialogue to perfect certain inflections and mannerisms. And that really helped me just go, right, I get this. And I bought into it. And as soon as she switches over to the Colin character, I was just sold on it. I do I do think it helps that Christopher Abbott, who plays Colin Tate, he was very good in displaying a man who is torn between these two consciences, especially towards the end. You're not seeing the main character on screen, but it's due to Christopher Abbott and Brandon Cronenberg that you can still see Tasha inside him. It's just brilliant. I did feel like I was watching her, even though it was Christopher Abbott's face on screen. They achieved it so well. I think they also do it with the bits where you do still see Andrea Riseborough, the most notable and what might be the famous scene during the sex scene. It cuts to naked Andrea Riseborough with an additional appendage. So it does remind you when it wants to. It is her. This is definitely her doing these things. It pulls it off so well. So good. Well, I'm more than ecstatic that we chose to watch this film this week. Let's just hope that next week's film review holds as much promise as this one did. What is it again? Mank. Directed by David Fincher, on Netflix, also starring Tuppence Middleton. Oh, is she in this as well? Yeah. That's three films in six weeks she's been in for me. What was the first one? Disappearance at Clifton Manor. She might be number two in the rankings of the most featured actors. Joseph Gordon-Levitt being number one. Well, end of year review, we will be sure to award her with such an honour. That can be our award, our one award who featured the most. Yes, Mank is next week. Thank you very much for listening, dear listeners. And if you wish to get in touch with us, please do so, as ever, by emailing us at inthealspodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on the Twitters. No. Instagram. James Howe. In the Isles Podcast. 
please follow us. And if you like this podcast and you'd like to support it, please share it on your social medias. From now until next week, if you have a wood-burning fire, please ensure that a fire poker is only used for its intended use and not for smashing in the skulls of other people within your household. Bye. Bye.